historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Recently, Israel's state comptroller issued a scathing report on the lack of seriousness of the government dealing with environmental challenges. What he stated was the following. Israel's not really getting ready for the environmental change. Israel is not a leader in implementing greenhouse gas emissions. We have no national plan. Israel has a clear, strong interest. We currently are 50% desert, and that will grow in the coming years due to the environmental changes. There were 378 government decisions on the environment, yet only 60 were budgeted. Basically, Israel has not declared the environment crisis as a strategic threat. Look, some say that Israel is so small that its influence over their environment is minuscule. But so what? What if every small nation would think that they are less relevant? It all adds up. Not only that, but life in Israel is about to change drastically if we do not confront the environmental issues. For example, food costs will skyrocket. They'll be much more expensive due to the lack of growth, like fruit. Storms, flooding, and fires have already increased. They'll increase even more. Terrible heat waves. You won't be able to leave the house when it gets really hot. All this will damage the economy severely. We could also face instability, more than now, from our neighbors. To shed a stronger light on this issue, I called the Heschel Center for Sustainability. I asked David Dunitz to join us. David is the head of the Heschel Climate Division. David has a PhD in education and published several articles on education for sustainability as transforming education. David, welcome. Good to be here. I got to admit something. You know, the Glasgow Summit on the Environmental Crisis just took place, and I must admit, it is scary. If you can give us a little bit of context, such as what's going to happen in 2004? That's not that far away. When it'll be possibly hotter by one and a half degrees. What kind of life are we going to live? That's an essential question right now. The Glasgow Summit, Climate Summit, is really the fruition of over 30 years of climate summits, conferences, conventions, that the world has been trying to put together agreements to reach a point where we won't have a climate meltdown. What's going to happen in 2040 is very much a result of what we do now with it. Because if the next 20 years are going to be something like the last 20 years, then it's going to be a lot harder than 1.5 degrees. It already is in Israel. And if we're talking about the Israel context, Israel is considered a hot spot for climate. It's one of the areas of the world that is actually getting hotter faster than other areas. In the Middle East, it's actually already 1.5 degrees hotter than it was in the 1950s. So that in 2040, it could be much, much hotter. There are going to be regions in the Middle East. Maybe not by 2040, maybe it'll be 2050. Nobody really knows how fast. Some regions are going to be uninhabitable completely. 50 degrees and more. That's really not, you know, congenial to human habitation. That would be 122 degrees Fahrenheit. People think that Israel is a desert. It is on the, on the cusp of the desert. It's between desert and Mediterranean. But we enjoy, even most of the summers here, the nights cool down. It's quite comfortable to sleep with the window open. It won't be possible in 2040 to do that because the nights will be as hot as today's hottest days. And that's bad. That has many, many repercussions in many areas of life. For old people, for pregnant women, disabled people who don't have the facilities poor people who don't have the energy facilities. So we're looking at something that's going to change a lot of our life patterns and our quality of life. It's interesting because you say that we're more affected than other places. And for instance, I know that in Scandinavia, they're not doing that bad because it's colder there. And yet we are way behind the European Union 
in many cases. How are we behind? Up until very recently, and things are beginning to change now, and I'll talk a little bit about how they're changing because um, we're seeing for the first time an Israeli government who is not just declaration-wise, but also seems to be very serious about putting in the, the greatest effort for mitigating climate change. But up until now, Israel gave lip service to climate change. It's interesting because if you compare the Israel political scene to um, the United States, climate change has never been a politically divisive issue as it is in the U.S., which almost defines who you, who you vote for and who you are if you are for and against climate change. I think that I hope that's changing in the United States as well. In Israel, although most of the right-wing government and, and Israel has drifted towards the right, they haven't taken on, the Israeli public hasn't taken on that divisive divisiveness of climate, yes, climate, no. There are climate deniers, even a few academics, but they're very on the edge. It's not actual climate denial that Israel's been engaged with, it's more climate ignorance. It just hasn't been an issue. The public, up until very recently, in most polls, Pew polls and surveys, the Israeli public didn't identify climate change as one of the great dangers. As opposed to Europe, where climate change is actually an issue that um, people get elected on. Israel's commitments to the former climate conventions and treaties up until now has been very paltry, has been very unambitious. And if you would ask Israeli politicians, what about climate change? They would say, well, we have a very small role in it, and we're, um, you know, we're a small country, and we really don't affect climate change, but we'll help the world with Israel's technologies, because we're a startup nation. And that is sort of a code word for, we're not going to do anything about climate, but we want to we make a good sale on our technologies. That's beginning to change. I'm saying that's beginning to change because Prime Minister Bennett went to Glasgow. There was a, a mission of 140 Israelis who went to Glasgow summit. There's a great interest now. I mean, I've followed this issue and I've been on the edge of pushing climate change resolution and, and restoration work in Israel for the last 20 years. So we're, we're beginning to see a shift. Let's get a little more specific. I wanted to ask you about waste management, for instance. In the past, Israel buried and even burned waste. What's happening today with waste management? Waste management is a pathetic area. We should be very ashamed of ourselves because we have one of the lowest average rates of recycling. All the waste management programs that were put out by the government kind of dropped out. They, they were ineffective. And in waste, you have to be consistent and you have to you have to build infrastructure. When they put out the first cages for recycling plastic bottles, people in government and people in the newspaper said, ah, who's going who's to recycle in Israel? Nobody knows. There's no awareness. This is not Germany. This is not Europe. The next day, those cages were almost filled up. The public was already aware enough and wanted to do something and just didn't have the infrastructure. But now if you go around Israeli cities, you can't find a place to throw the, the plastic bottles. You have to sort of bring them in to certain points in a supermarket, and some take it and some don't. Our waste management system has not been good, and that's very unfortunate because Israel's land resources are very limited. We don't have a lot of place to throw our waste. Present government, finally we have a minister of environment who actually wanted the job and is fit for the job. She has been an environmentalist and an environmental activist herself. They've declared that they're going now to reform the whole waste management policies. And then there's a couple of bright points, actually. So one of them is Israel's water solutions. Recycling is an example. We're also way ahead of the rest of the world. What can we teach other countries about water solutions? We already are. Israel's been good at that. That's something historically that 
that Israel put on the map from the very start. You know, this is an arid country. Water resources are scarce. So a lot of technologies went into drip agriculture and went into water reuse for agriculture. We have one of the highest rates of water reuse for agriculture and desalinization which has been a technology that Israel's jumped on. We don't have water shortages in Israel. We can do a lot of export of those technologies. And in the third world and developing world, Israelis go out, either government-sponsored or company-sponsored, to teach usage of water management. Drip agriculture is a big hit in the world because it uses much, much less water. That is really a bright side for Israel. Having said that, we shouldn't rest on our laurels because our whole region is drying up. But we must remember that desalination has its side effects as well. We're using a lot of energy. The desalination is very energy intensive, and that's not good in days in which we're trying to decarbonize. It also has effect on sea water warming around these desalination plants. They're also susceptible to terror and being hit by bombs. So we're a much rougher place if we don't watch out. And we had good uh, water conservation program a few years back, which the government succeeded in getting people to use less water. I don't know if you remember, Itai, that there was this uh, lady who came on television and she sort of had her face was like a picture of... Um, Israel drying up. That's what she said. And people used 7% less water immediately in that campaign. And there was also a taxation. Right, and there was taxation on overuse. And that was a good program, actually, that get, got people also used to using less water. As desalization kicked in, government officials said, okay, we have enough water, now we don't need this campaign anymore. And the water usage went right up. We have to really come back to our senses in that sense as well. Another bright point is the fact that every Israeli home, every Israeli apartment has a solar panel for water heating, which saves a lot of energy, at least in the summertime. What else can we do? What else should be mandated? Itai, we're actually, we're, we were the leader in the world in, in water heating. That was something Ben Gurion, the first prime minister, put in as uh, every rooftop had a, a water heater. And that saved a lot of energy. To this day, saved a lot of energy in which the building code and no one would, would think to build a house without a water heater, a solar water heater. And it's so simple. And, and in a way, we can, be, we can be proud of that. And this is way before there was any environmental movement involved or, or, or climate change was on the radar of anybody. It just shows that normative changes can happen if there's policy leadership and there's public will public understanding and people people will cooperate. What can the average Israeli do to, you know, face the environmental crisis? What should we do? I don't like using the word environmental crisis because I don't think we have an environmental crisis. We have a crisis of ourselves. The environment and the world, it'll be okay if we're not here, but we won't be okay because the environment is our life support system. You know, we can't exist without water, clean air, whole bunch of cycles, natural cycles that actually keep us going, bees pollination, the nitrogen cycle. All these things are way off already. I mean, this has been charted all over the place, but they're way off because of the way we live our lives, because of the policies that generate overuse, and because of a general, what do you call it, lack of awareness around these issues, I think there's a much deeper roots to this thing, and that is in the kind of societies carbon-focused societies that we've built up in the last 100 years. Because 100 years ago, we were in a completely different place in terms of all these life support systems. And now we have to be aware that everything is transforming. As Naomi Klein has said so aptly, this changes everything. She was talking about climate change. But it's not just climate change. It's climate change and the ecological system and, every, and, and the social systems that are supported by these things. So 
for Israel, what can Israelis do? There are many, many things that people can do on a, on a personal level. But as an educator, I would say first educate yourself. Get to know what are the issues, what's happening, what are our place in terms of that, and do some thinking and talking about it. Talk to friends about it. This is no longer what you call the environmental crisis or the climate crisis, or this is no longer an issue for greenies and 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 people who like granola and uh, tree huggers, as they were once called. I love hugging trees too, but I think Israelis are becoming aware that it's a life-sustaining issue. It's about existence. It's not about environment. Being a part of existence, it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's a huge campaign around the world and now in Israel too about declaring a climate emergency. Activist groups are getting governments to declare a climate emergency, not just for the declaration because what that might mean in terms of far-reaching policies once there's an emergency. But we in Israel, we've been living in an emergency for, for 60 years. This is part of our lifestyle, okay? Israel still formally defines itself in an emergency situation, and that is a kind of dangerous point to be at because we're always sort of pushing the bullet in what we can do and can't do because of the emergency. In terms also of civil rights, in terms of rights of Palestinians, because we're in an emergency, so we you know, we have an army. We have, to, we have to do what we have to do, that kind of thing. So I'm not sure for Israel, emergency mentality is the best thing. But people have to realize that it is serious. And this is going to define life in Israel and all over the world in the next years. And we have a very short window of opportunity to make a make the huge shift that has to be done. But it's not just about recycling or about, you know, eating organic foods. That's good. But it has to also be about what we demand from our leadership, what we demand from ourselves, what we are prepared to do in order to actually deal with the issues front and center. Israelis, I think, are intelligent people and we have to reach out and talk to, to people as environmentalists, as a climate movement, but also engage the public in the solutions. When I say that, I mean, not just, okay, go and throw your bottles, uh, get people involved, actually far-reaching policies. And because governments won't do far-reaching policies if they don't feel there's a public will. Once politicians know that this is what the public wants, things will begin to change. And they are. David, finally, can you just tell us a little bit about the Heschel Center? Heschel Center for Sustainability has been around for over 20 years. It was named after Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a historically one of the great rabbinic figures of the 20th century. The Heschel Center has been at the forefront of promoting sustainability. We're an, an educational organization, so we work a lot on awareness building. We work a lot on uh, leadership training. We have a fellows program, Heschel Fellows Program, which has been running for over 20 years. I was in the first cohort. Graduates of the fellows are now in many, many roles in government and industry who are actually taking these ideas of sustainability and promoting them in their various fields and arenas. And so we have, a, we have a lot of impact through, through our fellows. We work also with uh, local communities. We work with municipalities. We do a lot of stuff. And most recently, I'm an educator, and I worked with um, building environmental and sustainability education within the school system. And we put together um, a green network, which is still running today, of hundreds of Israeli schools. My most recent big project is to... This actually connects up to your last question about what can what can people do. There's a very, very deep and central connection between democracy and sustainability. Because, like I said, if people are engaged, they'll bring solutions and they will also help 
governments implement what they have to do and go above uh, vested interests and, econo- and short-term economic interests. So we have a project on democracy and sustainability through trying to found the first citizens' assembly in Israel. Citizens' assemblies are sprouting all over the world. It's a kind of deliberative form of democracy that gets normal citizens randomly selected from all walks of life to come together around an issue and give their recommendation and thinking to government and policymakers. So we're going to have our first pilot project of the citizens' assembly in a local authority in Tivon, near Haifa. And this is this is the kind of thing Heschel does. We sort of model new programs and try to get them out there to innovate social programs and environmental programs together. David, I wanted to thank you for educating us. And I hope we can speak again soon about Israeli progress in the environmental field. Yeah, let's open up a bottle soon, where we see how, how ambitious Israel has been in the next year. Israel has faced, and still continues to face, many challenges. Security, high cost of living, political divide, clash of the traditional and secular communities, and a lot more. Yet, all of these issues are minor compared to the environmental challenges that, if not dealt with seriously, will make our daily lives miserable and exacerbate issues of security, high cost of living, political divide, etc. It is time to act now. If you like Inside Israel, please share with others. You can access all of our episodes on InsideIsrael.fm, also on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Podcasts. (music) 